0: At this sound, the crowd gathered and was bewildered, because each one heard the disciples speaking in the native language of each. Amazed and astonished, they asked, are not all these who are speaking Galileans? And how is it that we hear each of us in our own native language? In our own languages, we hear them speaking about God's deeds of power. Please pray with me. Dear God in heaven, we ask you to join us here this morning and we trust that you are here with us in this place. May my words be your words and all of our thoughts your thoughts. We pray all of this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Please be seated. Almost no one, I think, visiting this church for the first time would accuse us of being charismatic, you know, overwhelmed by the Holy Spirit in worship. There's a raised hand here and there, but it's certainly not a normative practice here. We have wonderful music, but we rarely have anybody dancing in the aisles. I make great points in the sermon, but the amen shouts are pretty rare. Uh, We haven't yet experienced a prophetic utterance in worship, and no one has spoken in tongues, at least not publicly, so that someone else needed to interpret it. But if someone took all of that to mean that we are not charismatic, well, they'd be wrong. And I'd like to think that if someone took the time to worship with us and involve themselves in the life of our community, they'd come to see just how wrong they are. We are quite charismatic. We rely desperately on the Holy Spirit here. And today, Pentecost Sunday, is when the church remembers the unleashing of the Holy Spirit into the world. A day and a fact which makes it, in fact, impossible for a biblically faithful Christian not to be charismatic. Can I get an amen? Amen. So this morning, I'd like to give a little bit of a Holy Spirit overview using three pieces of scripture that talk about the Holy Spirit. I want to talk about the Spirit's work and how the Spirit relates to the gospel. The first scripture I'd like us to look at is Jesus talking about the Spirit in the gospel of John. And he's talking about what the Spirit is going to come and do. Uh, In fact, you might say that we're going to talk about what the Spirit does to us. Uh, The second scripture I'd like us to look at is our assigned reading today from Acts about the Holy Spirit going to do what the Holy Spirit is going to do with us and for us. And third is a reading from Paul's second letter to the Corinthians about the Spirit's specific relationship to the good news about what the Holy Spirit guarantees us. So those are our three sections of the sermon this morning. My homiletics professor would be very proud. A nice, clean three-section sermon. Part one from John, what the Spirit does to us. Part two from Acts, what the Spirit does with us and for us. And part three from Paul, what the Spirit guarantees us in the good news. Okay, so at the very end of the Gospel of John, chapter 16, in the midst of the Last Supper... After he has washed the disciples' feet, given them the commandment to love one another, and told them that he himself is the way and the truth and the life, after all of that, Jesus refocuses the disciples' attention on the fact that his time has come. He is going to the cross. He's going to leave them. But Jesus wants to comfort them. And so here's what Jesus says. But I tell you the truth, it is for your good that I am going away. Unless I go away, the counselor, that's Jesus' name for the Holy Spirit, will not come to you. But if I go, I will send him to you. And when he comes, he will convict the world of guilt in regard to sin and righteousness and judgment. In regard to sin, because men do not believe in me. In regard to righteousness, because I am going to the Father where you can see me no longer. And in regard to judgment, because the prince of this world now stands condemned. I have much more to say to you, more than you can now bear. But when he, the spirit of truth, comes, he will guide you into all truth. He will not speak on his own. He will speak only what he hears, and he will tell you what is yet to come. He will bring glory to me, Jesus says, by taking from what is mine and making it known to you. So there's a lot going on there. Too much for me to interpret in one sermon. But what I want to focus on now is the job description that Jesus shares with his disciples for the Holy Spirit. When the Spirit comes, Jesus says, he will convict the world of guilt. In regard to sin and righteousness and judgment. So the Spirit's first job, apparently, is to convict the world of guilt. There are other things, things that have to do with righteousness and judgment. And we'll get to those in a moment. For now, though, I want us to focus on the fact that the Spirit's first job is to convict us. The Spirit is to be the jury before which we offer up our lives. And to render a verdict. And that verdict is guilty. And there's sort of an awful finality to that, right? The conviction comes at the end of a trial. It's over. Jesus does not say that the Holy Spirit is going to come, carefully consider all the evidence presented, and see how things turn out. This is, in a sense, a a Trinitarian picture of how God the Holy Spirit relates to God the Father, right? Right? God the Father, creator of heaven and earth, is the giver of the law. He is holy, and therefore his law is holy. And because his law is holy, and because we are not holy, the spirit, the jury who will hear our case, has a simple verdict to render. Have we been perfect, as our Father in heaven is perfect? That's Jesus' commandment to his followers in the Sermon on the Mount. Do you want to be found innocent in the face of a holy God? Perfection is the only thing that will do. And it's the Holy Spirit's job, at least one of them, to render the deserved guilty verdict. And that's what the Holy Spirit does to us. He shows us our guilt. So... (laughs) As we move from part one to part two and into the book of Acts now, I imagine most of us are like the disciples must have been at that last supper. Pretty shell-shocked. I mean, the outlook here is bleak. The gavel has come down and the guilty exclamation has rung out across the courtroom. But praise the Lord, an intervention has come. We are now in Acts. Jesus Christ has lived and died and risen again. And now, though he has gone, he's promised to send God's Holy Spirit to be with us. And when the Holy Spirit shows up, he blows the doors off. The disciples are gathered waiting, as Jesus told them to, for part two to begin. It's the Feast of Pentecost, a Jewish remembrance both of the first fruits of the harvest and of the giving of the law to Moses on Mount Sinai. And then all of a sudden, part two of God's story is ready to begin. A sound rushes in, blows the room apart. A tongue of fire rests upon each one of them. They become full of the Holy Spirit, Luke writes in Acts 2, and start talking in all kinds of different languages. Because of this huge sound, a crowd has gathered. And this crowd is shocked at what they hear. Amazed and astonished, they asked, are not all these who are speaking Galileans? And how is it that we hear, each of us, who have come to Jerusalem from all over the known world, are we hearing each in our own native language? Parthians, Medes, Elamites, residents of Mesopotamia, Judea and Cappadocia, Pontus and Asia, Phrygia and Pamphylia, Egypt, the parts of Libya belonging to Cyrene, visitors from Rome, Jews and Apostolites, Cretans and Arabs, everyone in our own languages We hear them speaking about God's deeds Power. This is what the Holy Spirit is doing with us and for us. He's participating in the redemption of the world. As we said a couple of weeks ago, what happens on Pentecost? At least part of what happens on Pentecost is God redeeming the guilty verdict rendered at the Tower of Babel, right? All those years ago when there was one people in the world speaking one language, the people built their tower to make a name for themselves, to justify themselves. Look at us, they were saying. Look what value we have. Look what we can accomplish. And so God judged them. He showed the people how small their accomplishment really was and scattered them to the four corners of the earth and confused their languages. But now, on this day of Pentecost, all those different languages are back in one room and everyone can understand everyone else again. The judgment of Babel has been redeemed by the inrushing of the Holy Spirit. And what's even more important is what these people are saying. These disciples, these men, full of God's Holy Spirit, are speaking about God's deeds of power. Notice the symmetry. Babel was about humankind's failed deeds of power. And Pentecost is an announcement about what God has, in fact, accomplished by his deeds of power. And what deeds of power are we talking about here? Well, nothing other than the most recent and ultimate deeds of power, the death and resurrection of God's Son, our Savior, Jesus Christ. So after the bleak ending of part one, where we found that the work of the Holy Spirit was to lower the gavel and convict us of our guilt, we are now finding in part two that the Holy Spirit also fills us, the guilty ones, and actually uses us in ways beyond ourselves to proclaim the redeeming death and resurrection of Christ. We are guilty disciples, and yet we are used to share the good news. So finally we get to part three. What does the Holy Spirit have to do with the gospel? Well, you've heard it already, right? The Holy Spirit convicts of sin, but then fills the redeemed sinner and has them participate in the announcement of Christ's finished work for the world. But listen to how Paul puts it in his second letter to the Corinthians, a letter written when Paul is manifestly at a place where he is deeply in touch with the harsh realities of human life. Listen to the way he describes his life. Now, we know, he writes, that if the earthly tent we live in is destroyed, we have a building from God, an eternal house in heaven, not built by human hands. Meanwhile, we groan, longing to be clothed with our heavenly dwelling, because when we are clothed, we will not be found naked. For while we are in this tent, we groan. And are burdened because we do not wish to be unclothed, but to be clothed with our heavenly dwelling so that what is mortal may be swallowed up by life. Now, it is God who has made us for this very purpose. And here it is now and has given us the spirit as a deposit guaranteeing what is to come. Paul is first here, acknowledging the bleakness of part one. The world is under judgment that a guilty verdict has been rendered. He says we are groaning, longing to be clothed with our heavenly dwelling, because then we won't be found naked like we so often are, exposed to the world in our sin. While we are in this tent, this earthly body, We groan and are burdened because we are longing so desperately to be with our creator in heaven. We here in this place are not home. And because of this place, because of this life, we all too often forget the promise. We forget that God is a redeemer, that he can redeem even cataclysmic things like Babel. And because we forget, we often feel Scattered and alone, like no one understands us. We still feel like our sin is too profound for God to get over, for God to redeem, that it's still keeping us separated from him. Sure, we acknowledge Jesus said that those who believe in him will have eternal life. But that seems so hard to grasp. Can it really be true? But now here's Paul saying that the Holy Spirit has been given to us as a deposit, as a guarantee of the truth of what is to come. You know how sometimes you feel close to the Lord and sometimes you don't? How sometimes you feel loved and sometimes you don't? How sometimes you feel like everything's going to be okay? And sometimes you don't. Pentecost and the coming of the Holy Spirit preach a powerful message to those feelings. The gospel, the good news that Jesus Christ came to earth to die in the place of we, the convicted guilty, to take the verdict of that jury onto Himself, is true whether you feel close to God or not. It's true whether you feel loved or not it's true whether you feel like everything is going to be okay or not because remember the holy spirit is here because jesus ascended it is an objective truth it really happened the holy spirit is here because jesus was raised literally physically in his body The empty tomb makes it possible for the Holy Spirit to dwell with us, with you. Yes, he comes to convict us of our sin, to drive us to our knees and draw that choked cry from our throats. Jesus, save me. But the Spirit is also here to guarantee that that salvation has been accomplished. You feel far from God. The tomb was empty. You feel too sinful. The tomb was empty. You worry that things aren't going to be okay. The tomb was empty. The Holy Spirit is God keeping his promise to be with you. Even to the end of the age. So the Holy Spirit does something to you. He convicts you of your sin. The gavel has come down and you are guilty. But the Holy Spirit is not done with you yet. He fills you up. He is with you and for you. You are now a first person witness to the good news of Jesus Christ. A sinner saved by grace and indwelt by the Holy Spirit. And because it is an objective good news about Christ, the tomb really was empty and the work really is done. The Holy Spirit is also your guarantee that it's all true. And it is true today for you. In the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. Amen.